What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today. It is Monday, October 10th, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with our producer and co-host, Nick Chinusa. Nick, what is going on? Hey, not too much, my dude. Not too much. Had a beautiful weekend in the sun. How about you? Yeah, you know, not that anyone cares. I'm not going to drive into it too much, but uh, I'm almost on like the tail end of marathon training. <laughs> so this is my second to last long run before uh, November 6th. I have a long run next weekend and then like a longish one and then we're we're coasting, man. You are so like disciplined. I give you so much credit. I don't know how you're able to like just be like, okay, I'm going for this this run on this day, then I'm going for this run on this day. Like, it's just all so mapped out, so planned. Someone much smarter than me made a schedule, and I'm just sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're like that in other areas of life, so I'm sticking with what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's meticulous planning that luckily I did not have to do any of. So, uh, yeah, it's been an experience. I'm excited to be done. <laughs> <laughs> nice, dude. I'm excited for you. All right. Uh, We have a a fun episode today, and by fun, I mean infuriating, so buckle up. (laughs) If you listen to Friday's episode, you know we're talking about big oil today, and uh, yeah, hopefully this one inspires some new activists. Let's get right into it. Today, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. Make sure to turn on notifications so you don't miss an episode, and please share this show with at least one friend. Yes, for sure. All right, today's feature story episode is about big oil, and we're going to get into big oil's role in climate change, how long the industry actually knew about it, the global cost created by the industry, and more. Yeah, so we spoke on here, God, I think it was like one of our first episodes that we did where we talked about how ExxonMobil knew about climate change in 1977. Yeah. ExxonMobil purchased scientific research. That way they could bury it. And you know, they basically paid the scientists who found out that fossil fuels were warming the planet. It's like, yeah, we'll take your research. And then they just hit it, hit it from the public, hit it from everybody. Um, that way they could continue polluting the air as an externality of their industry. Nigerian journalist Adetokunbo Abiola recently published a report to his Substack that said big oil could have stepped in to stop climate change even earlier than 1977. They could have done something 63 years ago. Adetokunbo's research comes from the Earth Policy Institute. And his report starts off by saying that Exxon could have helped stop climate change starting in 1959. That year, at the Energy and Man Symposium at New York's Columbia University, famous scientist Edward Teller warned Big Oil about the effects of climate change. So in 1959, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere had risen 2% above normal levels. Teller said that by 1970, this could rise by 4%. 8% by 1980, and 16% by 1990. So basically doubling every decade. 
President Lyndon B. Johnson referenced Teller's report in 1965, which stated that burning coal, oil, and natural gas was adding CO2 to the atmosphere. Fossil fuel burning was the only major new producer of CO2, and we saw a 7% increase in CO2 in the atmosphere and the ocean between 1860 and 1960. The report warned of melting polar ice caps, sea level rise, and ocean acidification, all things we have been warned about previously and things we are experiencing now. 30 years later, in 1992, big oil executives knew that fossil fuels were causing the rising carbon dioxide levels around the world, just like Edward Teller told them at the Energy and Man Symposium in 1959. Yeah, it's really frustrating for me to read this because, you know, it's one thing if they were to say, hey, we think that fossil fuels are contributing to carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere rising. Well, what does that mean? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. You know, like maybe they, maybe you could cut them some slack if there wasn't what's going to happen. Right. There was no like implications of what those, what those actions actually mean. Right. And you could, you could cut them some slack if that was the case. But in 1959, Edward Teller told them straight up that polar ice caps were going to melt. Sea levels were going to rise. The ocean was going to get more toxic. Like all of these things that are proven correct. So it's not like they didn't know any better. And it's not like we didn't have the data available. Like this, this report was made known. The president knew about it and big oil was able to just keep doing their thing. Yeah, it's unbelievable. So Aditakumbo also writes about how Shell executives knew that the company generated 4% of the world's carbon emissions on its own through their own oil and gas exploration. Exxon, Shell, and Chevron were all part of the group that Edward Teller addressed this issue with and they did nothing because money. He writes about the earnings that each company had and how their earnings continue to grow and grow with atmospheric CO2. It's pretty clear here that as they are making more money off of fossil fuels, CO2 in the atmosphere is going up. And those kind of go hand in hand with each other. And it wasn't just those three. Other companies like BP and Texaco followed suit. Gains came at the cost of damaging the planet. And they knew and they kept doing it. And not only did they know, they spent millions of dollars to lobby against climate change mitigation. Every year, BP spends around $53 million. Shell spends about $49 million. Exxon spends about $41 million. And both Total and Chevron spend about $29 million. Because it's easier to spend money to convince people that climate change isn't a big deal than it is to cut profits to the industry. Yeah, it's, it's easier to keep making money lying to the public and then paying people to misinform said public than it is to stop screwing over an entire planet's people, wildlife, and ecosystems. So what you see here is the top five oil companies spending $195 million every single year to support action against climate change mitigation. Even today, Exxon is expanding their drilling plans, and Shell plans to drill 10 wells per year in the United Kingdom. So not only does Big Oil know what it's done, it has known what it's been doing, and it didn't stop industry executives from expanding, and with it, expanding the impacts of climate change. Aditakumbo writes about the following stats for how much climate change is costing us. Extreme weather disasters cost the U.S. more than $742 billion from 2017 through 2021. 
with taxpayers footing the bill, not even the oil companies. 31 extreme weather events hit the UK between 2018 and the end of 2019. And now they cost homeowners billions in repairs. Nigerians will get hit with between 6 to 30% loss of income between 2050, equivalent to a loss of 100 to $400 billion. Globally, extreme weather events cost the world an estimated $220 billion in 2021, up 24% from 2020. So yeah, the industry's made money, but like at what cost? You know, it turns out it's not just at the cost of the planet's well-being. It's not just at the cost of our long-term survival here on planet Earth. It's at the cost of people who are living here today, losing out on, you know, in, in some cases, 6 to 30% of their income by 2050 in Nigeria. In, in the world, $220 billion last year alone an increase of 24% over the year before. And that's something that as extreme weather events become more common and become stronger, I'm going to guess that that number is going to go up. So the, the whole goal of big oil making as much money as they can and screw the planet, you know, we're here to increase our value. That's what got us to this position. Yeah, it's straight up greed. It is like unmanaged greed that has just been able to ramp up and ramp up and ramp up over the years, completely ignore the facts and the science of what's going on on this planet and what they're doing to, the, to our planet and actually spend money against the, the science yeah. and spend money against the people who devote their lives to informing the public of what's going on and actually misinform people instead. It is a wild thought. Yeah. Like you are a soulless individual. You're soulless. Yeah. And, and to be fair, right? Like we're talking about the execs here. I'm not talking about the random accountants for big oil. Like, do I wish that they were working for a different company? Sure. But I'm not going to fault somebody who's not really making the corporate decisions at the top. Like this yeah. comes down to oil executives, CEOs, like the whole C-suite. They, that's who I'm directing this to. So if you're grandpa worked in a coal mine. Like I'm not mad at him. I'm mad at the coal industry and like the, the higher ups. Right. Exactly. A lot of people have made money in this industry or by using products, equipments, or systems that rely on fossil fuels. I was a delivery driver for pizza in high school. I was technically reliant on fossil fuels. I'm not talking about the person who was in my shoes 10 years ago. I'm talking about the CEO of Shell of ExxonMobil. It's, it's hard to read all of this and not wonder what could have been if we just transitioned away from fossil fuels at a faster rate. And yeah. I'm not saying it had to happen in 1959 when Edward Teller brought this up. But what if it was 1969? What if it was 1979 that we you know, started this push for alternative fuel sources? And I know someone out there is saying, well, what did we have out there at the time? You know, like solar panels are, are really relatively recent. And, and you're right, like this big push with solar is honestly not even at its peak yet, but it, it started more in the early 2000s, the late 90s, the mid 90s. That's when you started to see more of this. But the first known solar panel was created in France in 1839. We're not talking about the solar panels of today. 
But what if we took that technology and started investing more heavily in research and development for it in, say, 1965? Yeah. Right? Like, where are we at this point in time if we started this push 50 years ago? Yeah, absolutely. Could not agree more. It's, it's, it's a what could have been scenario. We'll, we'll just never know. Yeah. Because the, ultimately the people who had the power to change things decided against it, decided that they would just rather line their pockets with money instead of actually caring about what happens to people of the planet in, let's say, 50 to 100 years. Yeah. And, and two, two quick points I want to make here. It's not like this is some crazy hypothetical where we're like, oh, I wish we knew better because we did. Yeah. You know, we did. We had we had the first report on this in 1959. In 1977, it was presented again to ExxonMobil. Like there's periods of time here where we've had cohesive evidence that says that climate change is happening. It's going to get worse. And it's because of big oil. Yep. And they did nothing. And when you're talking about the misinformation thing, I was, I remember when, when we did an episode about recycling plastic, I was talking to my mom about it after, and I, I hope she's okay with me sharing this on the podcast, but like, whatever, mom, if not, sorry, it's nothing bad. <laughs> she was talking about how she felt like we've kind of been lied to. And I was like, that's because we have. And this is another example of like, if you're hearing this and you're thinking, I feel like I've been misled and I feel like people were lying to me. It's because you were lied to and because big oil did everything in their power to misinform the public and make honestly like make climate change this political issue where they've been like, oh, no, it's not happening. And then you have people who are more likely to listen to scientists being like it is happening. Yeah. And that's something that never should have happened. Like you don't you don't go up to a scientist who studies physics and be like, you know, I think this whole gravity thing is a little <laughs> overblown. Like it's here, but it's not caused by the sun. You sound like an idiot. <laughs> and imagine if like, that's how it was for people who, who don't believe in climate change. <laughs> no, it's, it's a wild, wild thought. Yeah. And one more thing that I want to place a little bit of blame on is, uh, I, like the media coverage of climate change for years was always kind of a one-to-one argument where they would bring in a climate change advocate and a climate change opponent and have them debate each other as if it's a one-on-one debate. When in reality, you have 97% of scientists saying climate change is happening. Yeah. So the analogy that I remember one of my professors saying to me saying was like, if you were going to go on a plane and 97% of pilots were like, yeah, I'm comfortable flying this plane. I can go up and do it. Let's fly. You're probably not going to listen to the one guy who's like, there's no way anyone can fly that. <laughs> so here's, here's the same thing. Like if 97 scientists are saying this is real. Why are so many people still listening to the one that is saying, no, it's, it's not real. It's just a natural thing. It's the earth's natural process. Like, yeah, it's frustrating, man. It's really, really frustrating. We had warm winters when we were kids. It, we were fine. Like, dude, stop. Yeah. Just please stop. Yeah. All right, let's take a quick break before I I lose it. Um, When we get back, we're going to talk about a couple topics that this report brings up, like what's next for big oil? What can we do to combat them? What's next for the planet? Stay tuned.
The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the materials to store craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. planet today everybody so we want to briefly touch on three topics related to big oil and the first one we want to get into is what's next for the industry specifically how can they decarbonize so we linked a mckinsey and company consulting report about this and it says that the oil and gas industry generates 42 percent of global emissions every year so how can the industry responsible for around half of all emissions keep making money without generating those same emissions. Yeah, it's it's interesting, right? Because we're basically telling a lemonade stand, how do you make money without selling lemonade? <laughs> like this this is their product. This is their bread and, and butter. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's not even like it's just their bread and butter. Like this is basically all they do. Like yes, big oil is involved heavily in the plastics industry. But even that is something that is produced from oil and gas. So like Everything that they do is off of this one product. So McKinsey estimates that big oil needs a 90% reduction in their current emissions. The report says that they can reach this by investing in carbon capture technologies, reducing methane leaks, and increasing efficiency. Although an easier method they bring up is by investing profits in renewable energy deployment. In the United States, the cost of solar has fallen more than 70% since 2011, and the cost of wind has dropped by almost two-thirds. By 2025, they could be competitive with natural gas-based power generation in many more regions. So we're talking three years from now. It might be just as cost-efficient to start a new solar facility, to start a new offshore or onshore wind facility. You know, we have all of these different options here, and let's face it, big oil has made a ton of money off of the earth. It's not like they don't have the money to invest in renewables. They can do it if they want to. And in this case, they kind of have to. Like if you want to keep making money in energy, your options are you have you have two options, right? You have one that's the entire market is shifting towards renewables. I'm going to follow the market and use the capital I've made to still be a market leader. Or you can just hold on for dear life and hope that you keep making money off oil for as long as you can, but eventually that's going to run out, I, I hope. Yeah. I, I'm. Me and my girlfriend just watched um, the documentary about Theranos. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. It's reminding me, this situation is reminding me of the Theranos situation. It's just like, let's keep our heads down, blindly keep doing the same thing that is not working, that's not going to be sustainable, and just like destroy people's lives 
and hang on to the last bit of hope that we have that we'll just kind of figure it out and like break through. It's the same thing as Theranos and it's completely frustrating. To me, I don't think that they would actually invest money in renewable energy development. I, I don't think that's something that they're, they're going to do. I think they're going to live to the last day and not actually do anything in terms of building up their, their infrastructure to be profitable in the renewable energy department. So the thing is, a lot of them are investing in renewables, but I think I kind of get what you're saying. Like we're, when, when Nick and I say we're, they're not going to invest in renewables, we're talking about like a full transformative right, like a company-wide different company. shift. Yeah. Yeah. Compared to like right now where it's Exxon is expanding their oil and gas exploration. Like, yes, they're investing a little bit in renewables, but they're really hedging on this whole thing not working. They're hedging on the fact that we are going to reach climate tipping points and we're going to get to a point where we just say, who cares? We're going to keep doing the oil and gas thing because the planet's already screwed. That's what they're hoping for. They have a little bit of a backup plan in their portfolio to say that, yeah, we're investing in some renewables. That's not what we're talking about here. We want like company-wide shift. And I I agree with you, Nick. I don't think they're going to do that, which is infuriating. And what you just mentioned, what is that? Maybe 10, 15% of the whole business, if that? If that. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if, if you're listening, and look, I hope you are feeling more optimistic than the two of us are about that idea, but if big oil is not willing to shift to renewables and decarbonize, then the next question is, what would it take for us to break up big oil? Yeah, so The Guardian published an article last year by Yesenia Funes about an admittedly radical solution to the big oil problem, getting rid of them. (laughs) Aisha Siddiqui is the founder of Polluters Out and was sick of the industry promoting climate denial for longer than she had been alive. So she brought up the idea of breaking up big oil in hopes of finding justice for low income and communities of color. Her group was founded after COP25 provided, honestly, no real solutions towards curbing carbon emissions in 2019. And the group began advocating for putting elected officials in charge of fossil fuel assets instead of what we see today, which is corporate executives. Nationalized ownership would allow the United States, for example, to leave oil and gas reserves in the ground while simultaneously shrinking the fossil fuel company's grip on the nation. This would also prevent oil companies from completely shutting down operations and laying off their workers like we have seen some coal companies do. With many communities depending on fossil fuel for putting food on their tables, a plan to break up big oil needs to make sure that those people are not left behind. This sort of move would not be easy to pull off and would be pushed back on in court. Big oil donates so much to politicians that it would probably be impossible to have enough political will to break up the industry. Yeah, that's the thing here. Like, I love the idea of breaking up the industry and I love the idea of, of, you know, nationalizing the assets and taking something that could be really harmful in the face of unchecked capitalism like we currently see with big oil and making it more, you know, the, the country's best interests are all that a nationalized energy system would care about. But there's so many politicians that, that make a ton of money off of big oil. And if you want, we can dive into an episode where we just go through a list of Congress people and just say, here's how much money they make from big oil. It would be way longer than half an hour. I'm going to tell yeah. you that right now. So <laughs> we're not going to do that. But like their hand is directly in the pockets 
of so many politicians that like we won't see the political will to break this up. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you. It's it's it is impossible uh, to break up that that industry. And the article mentions law expert Sean Hecht, who warns that breaking up energy companies may lead to unintended ripple effects. Simply erasing a company's existence could make it easier for them to ignore their financial responsibilities when they've caused harm. Yeah, so it'd be really similar to, you know, recently we've seen some big pharma companies get broken up and they also had to pay out damages to the families that were impacted by the opioid epidemic. This would be as if those pharma companies were broken up and that was the end of it. Yeah. So by erasing a company's existence, like we, we don't want them to just be let off the hook. Yes. Especially when so many communities have been negatively impacted by oil exploration near your water supply. Yeah, we need to have accountability. Like, especially when you're talking mm-hmm. about like, especially in their case, in their business, when they have oil spills, they're still cleaning up the Gulf. You know, like mm-hmm. there is still so much work to be done um, and many spills that have happened that still need to be cleaned up. And and that's just one quarter of what they need to be held responsible for. So yeah, 100%, I agree. We cannot just get rid of them completely. All right, then let's move on to one last quick topic we're going to touch on, shareholder activism. If they aren't going to decarbonize on their own and we can't break them up, then let's talk with our wallets. Yeah, so the traditional shareholder model of corporations is not usually sustainability first. Shareholders have no interest in the long-term health of a company and are more invested in revenue gains. That often does not include things like the health of our planet and its population. We've seen stories this year about groups of shareholders in big oil companies trying to get those companies to set clear emissions reduction goals, including taking responsibility for all emissions in their value chain. What's interesting is for someone like me, I think of my shareholder value as not investing in big oil or the companies that benefit from it. But in this case, we're looking at groups of shareholders buying stock in big oil so they can change it from the inside. And so far, this method hasn't really worked as well as some people had hoped. Shell and Exxon's emissions are still set to grow over the next few years, despite seven out of eight companies setting emissions reductions goals because of shareholders. But this push is still relatively recent and will probably become more impactful in the coming years, especially in countries like the United States, United Kingdom, and Norway. The requirements for bringing shareholder resolutions to the table is low in these countries, and shareholder influence is high, so shareholders can make a real difference here. And we're talking about countries that consume a significant amount of fossil fuels too, so this would be a good start. The issue is that shareholder influence works both ways. Some shareholders are still going to be more invested in short-term profits, which is why Shell is currently being urged to break up into two separate companies, one that focuses on shareholder value based on oil, and another that focuses on liquid natural gas and renewable energy. The article we linked from Forbes gives a six-step solution to being an activist shareholder. Number one, choose your cause. Number two, figure out which companies are doing the most damage. Number three, explain that investors' long-term financial goals align with solving the problem. Number four is buy as many shares as needed to get a seat at the table, which can be one share in some cases. Number five is bring in your concerns at the annual shareholder meetings in the form of resolutions. And number six is to stimulate others to buy shares and support your resolutions. 
it sounds so counterintuitive to be like, Hey, I really don't like what this company is doing. So I'm going to buy a bunch of stock of their company. Yeah. But like, it makes sense if you can do that, right? Like you, you buy out X amount of shares to become influential and then you can create change. But the issue for me here is that I don't think one share of Shell or Exxon is going to get me any mm-hmm. influence at the shareholder meeting. <laughs> I could be wrong, but I don't think I have the financial ability to go in like and become the kind of shareholder that has the influence that's needed. So for me personally, I just don't invest in big oil and I don't invest in banks that support oil and gas exploration. But hey, if you're listening and you have a ton of disposable income, I could definitely see this being a solid solution, especially as like a group coalition. You get, you get a group of shareholders to each buy 4%. Then all of a sudden, if it's 10 shareholders doing that, you got 40% of the company is, is really invested in decarbonization. Yeah, I, I just looked up because I was curious how many shares outstanding Exxon Mobil has. It's 4.21 billion. Um, which is substantial. So yeah, we're, we're yeah. talking about the people that can really, really influence change, um, with their cash. We're talking maybe like, let's say Warren Buffett, maybe yeah, Ray Dalio, someone like that, you know, like someone with Mark Cuban, who's a big fan of our show. Yeah, exactly. Someone with just a <laughs> boat. <laughs> but yeah, Exxon is trading at like $99 per, per uh, share. So Definitely really, really expensive. Um, and if you're if you're able to do it, go for it. So Mark, get after it, pal. <laughs> Cubes, we need you here, buddy. <laughs> All right. So hopefully, you know, you, you feel a little hopeful knowing that there are solutions and whether you're taking my side and just boycotting big oil stocks, or if you're taking the side of, hey, I have this kind of money where I can do this, first of all, cool. How? Second of all, do it, (laughs) like go to those shareholder meetings and make your voice heard. And all it takes is just going to the meeting, talking to other people who are like-minded and saying, Hey, this isn't just going to benefit the planet because renewable energy is really, really profitable right now. Our shareholder value goes up if we keep making money. And the best way to do that right now in the energy industry is not with oil and gas exploration. It's with renewables. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. All right, that'll do it for today's episode of TPT. Nick and I are going to be back on Friday for some more quick hits. Yes, and please be sure to share this episode with a friend if you liked it. Throw it in your group chats. It's a really simple thing. It takes two seconds. Yeah, personally, I think this was a good one, so I hope you did too, friends <laughs> of the pod. Make sure to follow us on our socials at Planet Today Pod for more TPT. For the Planet Today, I'm Nick Janusa. I'm Matt Norton. See you on Friday. Peace.